invite you to consider with me, uh, if you have your Bible, one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. Uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning and also next week. I'm not going to try to get through all of this today. In fact, I'm going to deal with this text this Sunday and next Sunday. And um, But I, because I, I just feel like it's important to spend some time on this. It's, uh, again, very controversial text in our culture. And uh, so uh, we'll, we'll spend a couple of weeks on that. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you have your Bible, I invite you to go there with me. And before I get started, I'm, I want to make a brief comment regarding an illustration that I uh, used last Sunday, um, and it bothered me after I used it, after some things I said, and later in the week, Mindy mentioned it to me as well, so between the Holy Spirit and Mindy, uh, I figured I might, <laughs> might want to say something about this. So just to provide a little bit of a pastoral clarification, any... And you know, it's anybody who stands up and speaks a lot, you're, you're going you're gonna to say some things that didn't come out the way you wanted. And so uh, this wasn't in my notes, but I was speaking in the context last Sunday about the importance of biblical manhood and that a godly man abides in Christ and in his words, devoting himself to prayer, some things that we saw in the text. And talking about the importance of dads, granddads being spiritual role models to young guys as they grow up. And, and in contrast to that, I was trying to make the point that culture today uh, tries to provide a definition of manhood for us, right? So that makes sense. So the culture tries to define manhood instead of what the Bible says about manhood. And so by contrast, I made a statement that the culture defines manhood by being macho and driving a truck and shooting guns and hunting and fishing and using tobacco and drinking beer and being promiscuous. And none of that was in my notes. And it just kind of came to mind. And so I want to say this. If you drive a pickup truck or you hunt or you fish or fire guns, I apologize if I offended you. And further, I like driving my pickup truck, and I like to fish, and I like to shoot guns. However, I will stand by my comments on tobacco, beer, and being promiscuous. Okay? Now, I feel a lot better. I, I hope that you do as well. <laughs> so all of us brothers can stick together in Jesus. And Amen. So what does this text that we're going to read, what does it say about women in the church? Again, this is a pastoral epistle written by a seasoned pastor to a younger pastor, providing spiritual counsel and guidance to this young Timothy. This was his this first time he pastored a church, and so Paul was helping him out, and if you remember, they had... Originally, when Paul was in Ephesus, he writes a letter to Corinth, checks on them. They write a letter back to Paul, and they provide some, uh, some enlist some categories, some issues, some problems they were struggling with in the church. So this letter, 1 Timothy, this pastoral epistle, is written to Timothy dealing with some of the issues that are in the text. And one of the issues was women in the church. And so he's... Uh, writing this, and if you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, I write this to you so you would ought, so 
ought, how you ought to conduct yourself in the church. So in other words, the context is one of church health. So this is a strategy Paul is providing to Timothy to establish spiritual priorities in the church in order for them to be a healthy community of faith. I would say this set of priorities is a good strategy for us that we would do well to follow us in the same thing. So just let me touch on, you remember what the priorities were? The first thing he lists in chapter one is the priority of the word. The ministry of preaching and teaching is essential in a healthy church. So all of us agreeing to stay with the Bible, all of us studying individually, learning scripture, growing in the faith and in his word. And Paul, especially in the second letter, tells him to devote yourself to the ministry of the word, to study and prayer to ensure that not only everything that you're speaking, teaching is doctrinally sound, but make sure that other things that are being taught in the church are doctrinally sound as well. So first priority is the ministry of the word. Second, in the church, he says, he doesn't say it this way, but it's really what it means. Don't sweep dirt under the rugs in the church. God has entrusted the spiritual leadership of the church with the priority of maintaining discipline. And so you just don't, you need to address things, deal with things that are problematic in the church. That also means for all of us, it would do us well to stay connected to one another in relationships and we, where we welcome accountability. We welcome accountability. That's one of the Real healthy issues, uh, healthy strengths in a church is that we're all connected and all accountable. And so, ministry of the word, uh, church discipline, maintaining discipline in the church, and the third is the priority of prayer. Paul urges in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, I urge you that all kinds of prayers be made in the church for all kinds of people. And he says, notice in verse 3, that this is pleasing to God. It brings God's pleasure. That's, that ought to be something that motivates you and me to know that as we spend time with God in prayer, that it brings the Father pleasure. And then we saw in verse 8, Paul singles out the men. He says in verse 8, I desire that the men pray. And so what he's doing is he's calling the brothers in the church to step up. And we examined two considerations with this. This call for men to pray does not exclude women to pray. Women are by no means spiritually inferior to their male counterparts. Galatians 3, 28, again, there's neither, what? Slave, free, Jew or Gentile, neither male nor female, for all of us are one in Christ Jesus. So he's describing our, our standing with the God spiritually, that we are equal. Women in the first century, nor today in the 21st century, are any way spiritually less than men. Mindy and I are spiritually equals before the Lord. And he also goes on to make the point that women have the same spiritual access to God. Uh, there's one God, verse 5, one God, one mediator between God and man, who? The man Christ Jesus. And so He's the mediator that, all of, that provides all of us with access to the Father. So all of us, men and women, young and old alike, are a spiritual family. All are one in Christ, spiritually equal, with the same spiritual access to God. 
So when Paul is singling out the men here to be praying, it is in no way a message that women are less than or spiritually inferior. And the second consideration regarding that is Paul is most likely singling the men out because they needed to be singled out. Because it's been the spiritual tendency of men from the first man in the book of Genesis to most men today, when it comes to spiritual living and spiritual things, men have a tendency to be passive. You remember in Genesis, God establishes his word with Adam. In Genesis 2.8, God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and the Bible says there he placed the man whom he had formed. And then in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, and God put Adam in the garden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was given to the man. And in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent appears and begins tempting the woman, he, and you remember, he, he tempts her to first to start doubting God's word, and then he gets her to the point of denying God's word, to the point of disobeying the word. That's always his strategy. He'll weaken us as God's people by causing us to have doubts regarding Scripture, to deny it to the point of disobeying it. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, side by side with her, and he ate as well. And so the point that I'm making here is Adam was given God's word. Adam was clear on God's instructions. And in an hour, a time of spiritual temptation, what does Adam do as a man? Spiritually, he begins to fade. Adam was with his wife, he was with her, and he becomes passive he does nothing to serve, nothing to protect. He goes silent and checks out. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, who does God confront? He doesn't confront Eve. He confronts Adam. And he says, Adam, what have you done? Not y'all, not her. He confronts Adam. And so the picture is God establishes this covenant with Adam, and Adam is the one whom God holds accountable. And so Paul explains biblically and theologically that sin entered into the human race, not through Eve, not through the woman, but sin entered the race through who? Through Adam, through the man. And the point was that Adam was to be the spiritual leader, the servant, the protector, but he fails. He does nothing. He never speaks up, nothing to protect. He sits back passively and watches. And what's even worse than that, when the consequences from, from sin begin to settle in, you remember Adam is the first one to deflect blame from himself and to blame and find fault with God and faulty. Do you remember what he said? Well, God, it's your fault. You're the one who gave her to me. And, and then he, and he def deflects blame to Eve. I want to 
this little sidebar, but I want to provide you with a definition of biblical manhood that I came across several years ago, but it's always stayed with me. Biblical manhood. If you want to jot this down or commit it to memory, it's really good. What is a biblical definition of a man? First of all, a man rejects spiritual passivity. He rejects spiritual passivity. Second, he accepts spiritual responsibility, rejects being passive, accepts being spiritually responsible. Third, he uh, leads with courage, rejects passivity, accepts spiritual responsibility, leads with courage, and finally, he lives for a greater reward. He lives for a greater reward. You got that? Reject passivity, brothers. Accept spiritual responsibility. Lead with courage and live for a greater reward. It's a good definition of manhood. Paul is saying here, I desire that the men pray. I believe because they were probably spiritual, spiritually passive and weren't praying. And it was one of the many practical ways they were to provide spiritual leadership here, certainly in the church, but also in the home. So Paul says, yes, let the whole church be given, devoted to prayer, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. God finds pleasure in this, and he urges the men to step up, praying in all places, without quarreling, without arguing and fighting, lifting up holy hands to the Lord, like the psalmist said, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart, in other words, living a godly life. So with all of that said, then from our text, he has some words of counsel for women in the church, and so I invite you to read 1 Timothy, starting at verse 8 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without quarreling or wrath or doubting, and in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for your word, grateful for your living word that you made manifest through the Lord Jesus, and deeply grateful for your written word given to us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Our prayer is that through your presence and spirit, you would guide us into all truth 
speaking to us, giving us ears to hear and minds to be enlightened as we slowly process all that you say. Give us grace and understanding through the anointing that you provide, and in so doing, build us up as your holy bride. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So, interesting text, amen? Uh, some of you are very curious uh, how this is going to be dealt with. And so, before wading into the text, I want to make some introductory remarks um, and mention this earlier. If you're not aware of this, this text, this specific text is the most hotly debated and controversial texts in all of the Bible, not just in Babylon's life, but in almost any other kind of church context. And I think there's three reasons this text is so controversial and so hotly debated. Number one is first, those outside of the church, outside of the body of Christ, they don't like it. They don't like this text. And the reason they don't like it is, A, they've never studied it and don't understand it. And if they did study it, they wouldn't understand it, right? Because 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 14 says, the natural man, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, is not able to understand or discern spiritual things. And so they're not, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they're not really going to understand what this saying. So there are lots of outside voices outside the church that have unfortunately pressed down upon the church, causing the church to even have some issues with it. Second, this text is also controversial because some, if not many, within the church don't like it. Within the church, they don't like it because they too have never studied it and don't understand it. And so their tendency is to just to skip over it or to ignore it. And also it's seldom ever addressed from pulpits or in teaching settings. They just skip over it, just ignore it. And third, it's controversial because, and hotly debated, because so many women in the church and out of the church have been abused by men. They've been abused by men, in some cases by husbands and dads and boyfriends, some of whom have been in the church. So when women have been verbally and emotionally abused and physically abused, and when women in our culture have been battered and beaten down and raped and lied to and cheated on and abandoned by men, some of whom are in the church, then it's little wonder why this text is painful for so many women to see it and to hear it and to embrace it. But God, by his grace, may he help bring healing today and clarity through his word. What is this text saying about women in the church? Well, first, everything Paul is saying about women and men in the church, especially women. And if you notice the text, he mentions women in the church learning and teaching and having authority and being saved all of those references are to the church gathered. 
to the church gathered. In other words, these instructions pertain to the church, the body of Christ coming together. Now, the letter never actually says that and uses the word gatherings. Rather, it's implied. For example, if you notice in chapter, and, and I want to just say this, I've studied and studied and searched and searched. It never comes out and says this refers to corporate gatherings. However, go with me to chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, this is how things ought to operate. This is how things should be conducted where? He says, in the house, in the church. And so it's implied. Earlier in chapter 1, the false teachers were functioning, it says, when the church gathered. And so, while it doesn't say this explicitly, it's implied that this, and this is important when you try to interpret the context, this is referring to the church coming together. So, sound Bible interpretation and teaching requires to understand and apply this to corporate gatherings. When we as God's people come together, and it could also have pertinence to, in the early church, when they had house meetings, when they would gather together. So why is that important? Because it's a mistake to try and apply these principles to how things are to be done outside the church. That's not what Paul is addressing. Paul is saying, this is how things are to be done in the church. The world will do things differently, but the church is also to do things differently according to scripture. So those who don't know Christ should not be expected to understand this, certainly not to abide by what the Bible says. You and I, as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, have different marching orders. This is how things are to operate within the church family. So what is the instruction? What are these different instructions for women? Paul is addressing proper church conduct. Again, this word ought in chapter 3, verse 15, is a forceful word conveying this conduct is of utmost priority, it's of necessity. And so, after calling out men in verse 8, calling them out of their passivity, they're not spiritually engaged, not praying. If you probably go back to chapter 1, there were some who were teaching in the church that shouldn't have been teaching, and so they were to be removed. And I can imagine, you just can imagine with me, that they're there were probably also other men in the church who should have been teaching but weren't. Other men who were, and just let me say this out of love and compassion as pastorally as I can, there are some men in this church who are seasoned. You've raised kids. You've been married 25, 35 or more years. You've lived life a little bit. You know scripture. And some of you brothers need to step up and teach the word. You need to be stepping into ministry of the word roles within the church. So Paul says, men in the church, some were teaching that shouldn't have been teaching. They were to be removed. And there were probably others who should have been who weren't. And so I just want to encourage you, you brothers, to pray about that. And then so... The first thing that Paul addresses in verse 9, these women in the church were too zealous in the area of personal adornment. That's what he's saying in verse 9. Too zealous in the area of personal adornment. When they came to worship, when they came to church and gather publicly, he specifically says their clothing and their hairdos, their hairstyles, their jewelry, 
He singles them out, and Paul says they are improperly adorned. Well, how were they improperly adorned? Paul says they were lacking modesty and decency when they gathered together in church. And so this is the idea. Some of the women, and you remember there, that whole city of Ephesus steeped in Greek culture, Greek philosophy. You remember the, the temple of Artemis and Diana and uh, pagan women there who had significant roles in leadership in those pagan worship places, and, and they specifically had certain kinds of dress. Evidently, some of that was culturally was carrying over into the church. And so they were, in essence, they were drawing too much personal attention to themselves physically and financially. Instead, look at verse 10. This is the goal. When preparing for a public gathering, coming together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 10 says that women, the focus is to be more on spiritual adornment and less on physical adornment. Look at verse 10. The aim is what? Dress, adorn yourself in a way that depicts godliness and holiness and, he says, second, of good works. And so their personal appearance, the way they did their hair, their makeup, their clothing, their outward physical appearance was to be marked by godliness, by holiness. There is a parallel passage in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Let me read it. It says, Do not let your adornment merely be outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So, Women in the church are to dress for God's approval. For God's approval. For God, I mean, think about this. The word amen means yes, right? Yes, I agree, amen. It would be for a woman to dress in a way where God would say amen. Amen. With modesty and discretion, with an inner beauty of a godly life and good works. Remember what Jesus said about good works? Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Hillcrest ladies, this would be the idea. Make sure that when you dress for worship, your looks are not intended to get looks. Let me say that again. Make sure that when you dress for worship, your looks are not intended to to get looks, showy clothes, flashy jewelry, fancy hairdos, misses the point. And if you let me go further, kind of as your pastoral dad, and I'm not going to try to define this or spell it all out specifically, because I don't want to try to interpret this text literally, literally with an application that forbids certain kinds of clothes and hairdos and jewelry. I don't want to go down that road. But a literal, in fact, a literal. Some of you may have the King James Bible from 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 3. A literal translation and application of 1 Peter 3, which says, and of the women, not to put on apparel. You hear that? Not to put on apparel. So that would make an interesting 
public worship service if you took it literally. So what I'm saying to you, it's a mistake to try to go to a text like this and try to define what are all of the acceptable hairstyles? What are the acceptable jewelry? What is all the acceptable kinds of fashion? I think that's missing the whole principle of the text. The principle is when you dress as a Christian woman, dress with modesty and decency. And I'll go further. This, that should just be every day. That should just be every day of your life. I want to dress with decency and modesty so that my Father in heaven would say, amen, amen. The aim is never to attract attention to yourself physically or financially. Never adopt a look to get looks. Let your appearance be one that honors God. And I would also add, encourage you to prayerfully seek God as women, to see God keeping yourself free from being in bondage to cultural expectations. As a woman, don't be enslaved by cultural expectations on how you dress and how you look. That by, let me say a couple of things. By trying to look perfect, with your hair being perfect and your nails being perfect and your makeup being perfect with matching jewelry and a matching handbag with all the latest fashion trends and you can only buy clothes from certain stores and even you could go as far as the kind of car you drive and the kind of home that you live in. That's being enslaved. That's being brought into bondage by cultural expectations. Someone has rightly said the way a woman dresses is a mirror of her mind. The way a woman dresses is a mirror of her mind. By God's grace, be set free from those kinds of pressures. Certainly look nice in all public settings, in church, in church and out of, but make your aim to put on Christ, to be a godly woman known for good deeds. Moms, grandmoms, teach and model this to your daughters. Teach and model it to your granddaughters. It would be wise if the older godly women would graciously modest or monitor the younger women to, to lovingly oversee this. You remember, not, not as legalists, but you remember what Galatians 6.1 says? You do it gently, carefully, and prayerfully. The Bible says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, what? Shall be praised. I, as a pastor... I think about this, same thing for me. I want to dress with modesty. I, I never want to wear expensive, flashy suits. I don't want to dress in the pulpit, try to impress anyone. I don't want to create barriers. I don't want to alienate. I don't want to try to look cool. I don't want to try to look hip. But I want to dress appropriately in a way that honors God, even as a man. And so the application, especially in public worship, also can be carried over into private. Dress in a way that looks nice. First and foremost, that honors God, professes godliness, and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as 1 Peter says, inner beauty is more valuable and precious to God than outward appearance. We used to have these kind of conversations when the girls were little. 
You know, and I as a dad would say, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, I love you so much, you know, and just would compliment them, try to build them up. And many and I were very intentional to talk about, but there's a beauty on the inside that's far more important than what's on the outside. An inward beauty as a woman of God that's far more important than what's on the outside. Paul is affirming, let the, and then second, and this, uh, this gets a little tougher as you work down through the text. Uh, second in verse 11, and I don't, don't want to just read this and overlook this. This is very positive. He's affirming something. He says, let women in the church what? Verse 11. Let them learn. Let them learn. Don't just read this and pass right over. Listen, that is an emphasis on women's value. Let them learn. That was no small matter in the first century culture. It was a message that needed to be heard in the Ephesian culture. Paul is affirming, let the women, the women in the church, let them learn. You say, learn what? Learn about God. Learn about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit, about the God. And let the women in the church learn scriptures. Let them learn the Old Testament and how everything foreshadows the coming of Christ. Let the women in the church learn about the great doctrines of the Bible, about the inspiration of the scriptures and about creation and of the fall and of sin. Let them learn about God's commandments, ceremonial laws that were all fulfilled in Christ, but the moral laws of God's commands are all still in effect. Let women in the church learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and spiritual service. Let them learn about evangelism and sharing their faith, how to disciple other women, how to disciple their daughters and their granddaughters and their sons. And let the women in the church learn about marriage and learn about family and what God's word says about those subjects. You see, with such a male-dominated society like it was in the first century that was so patriarchal, with men so valued and women so little valued, it's easy to see why women in the church, young ladies, wives, moms, and grandmoms might begin to view themselves as spiritually inferior to men. That their husbands and the men were spiritually above them and closer to God and stronger in faith, which is not anything that the Bible teaches. You see, nothing could be more misguided from Paul, Paul again made it clear, Galatians 3.20, it's a powerful spiritual verse, neither Jew Gentile, slave, free, male or female, male or female, all are equal, all are one in Christ. Women, just like men in Genesis, were created in God's image with their first spiritual priority then to reflect that image, to be image bearers, image reflectors, women reflecting God through a godly life and good works, spiritual equals, equals access to God, there's no distinguishing difference in the New Testament on how the Holy Spirit dispenses spiritual gifts to women than he does to men. So Paul is affirming women. It's kind of radical for that culture. Jesus modeled this. Women accompanied him. Uh, he taught women. They served. They shared their faith. They ministered. Paul had a team of servants of women around him that were also ministering the word. So Hillcrest, let's do all that we can as a church family to encourage, to encourage girls to learn, 
to learn God's word with a right sense of priorities, to learn about who God is and his word and doctrine and who they are in Christ. And I'd add as a sidebar, let women learn academically. Let them excel in school with education and do everything they can do to develop themselves for God's glory. To learn, to learn, to be all they can be for Christ and for his service. And then back to the text. It says, and when, when women gather for worship, yes, let them learn. And then look at verse 11. They are to learn in silence, in silence with all submission. Gets, and so the, the plow's getting a little deeper as we go along. And I know what you want. You want me to get to this women teaching men thing, and I'll get there next week. So, but, uh, so you just keep reading. But what does this mean? 1 Timothy 2, let women learn, but let them learn in silence in the church with all submission. This is one of two places in the New Testament that are referred to as silent passages where the women, it says, are to keep silent. The other is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Let me read it. Let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Uh-oh but they are to be submissive. And so the question emerges, how do you interpret this? Do you, do you put, we're a strong, evangelical, Bible-believing Baptist church, and above all the doors to women, once you enter here, no more speaking, be silent. Is that what that means, this verse? No, this, this is not to be literally taken uh, interpret it. It's, it's not referring to absolute silence because we know, say, how do you know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter verse 5, Paul makes the point and he says that women can prophesy and pray in the church as long as their heads are covered. What does that mean? Well, the head covering culturally was a sign of submission. So he's not saying that they can't speak, pray, prophesy, can't miss the word. He's so what is this? He's saying it's not referring to a literal silence. Rather, it's the real issue is submission. And so the idea here is silence conveys the principle of submission. The text could have read, when the women gather for worship, let them learn in all submission. And then if you would have asked Paul, well, what does that mean for the women to learn in submission? He would have explained, well, it means to be silent. It was a way of conveying submission. Now, some of us, when we hear the word submission, we start squirming a little bit and begin to feel a little uncomfortable. Submission, that word comes up and blood pressure begins to elevate and lots of negative connotations and ideas emerge. But I want to encourage you to think differently about this word submission. Submission is an important word for all of us. It's important because all of us left to ourselves, man, woman, husband, wife, young person, older person, every one of us left to ourselves without God, without God are by nature rebels. 
We're, we're rebellious people. So why are we rebellious? Well, it's because of our nature. Our nature is sinful. Sin is rebellion against God. And by nature, left to ourselves, all of us are rebellious. We are people who dislike authority. Any of you ever question authority at work? You don't like authority? You don't like being told anything? You don't like anyone questioning you? You don't like anyone correcting you? We, we, we just don't like authority. We don't, we don't like submission. It's not in our nature. But the fact of the matter is, this doctrine of submission is needed. And it's especially needed in the church to maintain church health, and it's needed in the home to maintain marital health, and submission is needed in order to maintain relationships in general. So let me provide some comments regarding, from some texts regarding submission. First, all Christians, men and women, are commanded to submit to God. James 4, 7. He says, after he describes some things regarding all of us as God's people, he says, therefore, submit to God. And he goes on to say, resist the devil, flee from him, but all of us are to submit to God. In Ephesians 2 and Philippians 2 and 3, the Bible says that all of us as God's people, men and women, male, female, husbands, wives, all of us are to submit to the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 21, all of us, before he gets down into marital roles for the man, for the husband and the wife, he says in verse 21, all of us are to submit to one another out of fear and out of reverence for God. All of us are to be submissive. All of us as a church family, according to 1 Peter 5, are to submit ourselves in the church to spiritual leadership. It says, likewise, submit to those who are elders, and all of you be submissive to each other and clothe yourselves with humility. So we put off rebellion and clothe ourselves with humility and adopt submissive attitudes. And in marriage, think about submission in marriage. We often overlook 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, where it says, husbands are to submit to Christ because he is the head of the husband. And then Ephesians 5.22, wives are to submit to husbands, and on and on. So all of us as God's people, holy and beloved, need to develop greater clarity on submission. It's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. Study the relationship of the Godhead. God the Father having all authority over the Son and over the Holy Spirit and you see in the Bible, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit always sitting, submitting themselves to the Father. Philippians 2, say, 2 says of Jesus, who being in the form of God, who was fully one with God, fully equal to God, submitted himself or did not insist, did not insist on his equality to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking it on the form of a servant, humbling himself before the Father. So what is submission? What is submission? When the Bible and the text says, let women learn in submission, and all of us are called to have submissive 
uh, to submit to other people, relationships to God, all of it. It's a good doctrine. What is submission? Well, it's, it's an attitude. Submission is an attitude. It's a way that you think. It's a way that you view things, you view people, you view authority. It's a perspective whereby we voluntarily, not because, not because God says I have to do this, but it's a voluntary choice. It's an attitude where I decide in order to bring the Father pleasure, to glorify Christ, to advance the gospel, I willingly want to, I choose to, I voluntarily do this to relinquish control and my rights and my preferences and I humble myself before God and I trust him. By the way, none of us would be saved without submission. Or I say, God, I'm no longer mine. I'm dying to self. God, you take me, you use me. My preferences, my rights, my control, all all are put in the past, and I submit myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the basis for salvation. It's the basis for relationship with God. It's the basis for relationships with other people. So in this text, the wife, the woman in the church, is built out of this whole principle of submission. And I'll get to headship next Sunday in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But the wife, you remember Ephesians 5.22, is called by God to submit. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's an attitude to her husband as the spiritual head, the spiritual leader of the home. And the Christian husband in 1 Corinthians 11.3 is commanded by God also to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it actually says, for I want you to know that the head of every man or husband is Christ, and the head of every woman or wife is man, and the head of Christ is God. So husbands, how are you doing on this? How are you doing when it comes to submission to Christ, to relinquish control, to relinquish my rights and my preference, and dying to self and taking up a cross, that Christ would rule, that he would rule me, that Christ would be the head of my life. And then to go on to love my wife as Christ loves his bride, as he loves the church. Ephesians 5, 25, it is a sacrificial love. And when the wife, in submitting to the husband, and in so doing, she is doing the same thing, relinquishing rights, control, humbling herself before God, say, Father, I'm going to trust in you. And I would add that if this teaching, this principle of headship and submission, if it's not settled in the home and it's not settled in marriage, it will never be settled in the church. God doesn't intend for us to operate one way at home and a different way in the church. So the Bible is clear. There is a divinely created order involving males and females, a structure with men and women being spiritual equals, spiritual equal access to God, but there are divine differences and distinctives among husbands and wives, males and females that God created. Contrary to what culture says, men and women are not the same. 
Males and females are different by design. And there's different roles that complement each other in the home and in the church. And so the spiritual leadership of husbands and elders in the church in no way implies any inferiority towards the woman or towards the wife. And of course, culture, because of biblical ignorance and sin, balks at this, questions these principles and attacks it. But go back to the Trinity. There was no inferiority there. The headship of God the Father in no way conferred inferiority of Jesus the Son or the Holy Spirit. They both submit. Why? Because that was their role for bringing glory and honor to the Father. And so women in the church, in the home, are to voluntarily to adopt an attitude of submission, not of, out of inferiority, not, they're not intellectually inferior, spiritually inferior, but it's a way to honor God to glorify Christ, and the husband is to lead. Not to be passive, but to step up and submit his life to God, to love and to lead as Christ loved the church. Which, guys, means dying to self. And this is what I think about when the Bible says I'm to be the spiritual head of my home and of my wife. It's a very humbling a very humbling responsibility. And you think about dying to self and serving and put her needs first and providing for and protecting and caring and listening and praying and building up and do everything that I can do by God's grace to be a blessing to my wife and a blessing to my, my family, to my children. Men... Uh, one of the reasons this principle of submission is so hard for many of our wives and women in the church is because men reject, we, we need to reject passivity and accept responsibility and lead with courage and live for a greater reward. So let me summarize. What does God's word say about women in the church? He says, adorn yourself with godliness and good works. However you dress, however you appear every day of your life, let it be something that where God would say amen. And second, learn God's word. Learn God's word. And as we'll see later, a little more detail, more next week. And then adopt a submissive attitude for his glory in marriage, in the home, and in the church. And by God's grace, I'll unpack verses 12 through 15 next Sunday. Let's, let me pray with you.